Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, good morning. Welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. I'm so glad you're here with us, whether you're here in this room, you're over in our East service, or you're watching online. Thanks for spending some time with us. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to spend a little time with you in God's Word. In fact, if you have a Bible, I'd love to encourage you to go ahead and pull it out and turn to Luke chapter 22, the passage that was just read so wonderfully. Uh, or if you have your phone, fire it up, scroll to Luke chapter 22. That's where we'll be. You know, we've been in the middle of this great sermon series we're calling Come and See. They're looking at the final 10 scenes in the Gospel of Luke uh, as to Jesus' time on earth. It's been amazing. There's just something about slowing down and kind of soaking in the person and ministry of Jesus that is so compelling. I hope that the Lord has been using it in your life. But we're actually going to hit pause on that this week. Uh, we're going to step out of that series but stay in the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going to go back to a story that we skipped over. And the reason why we skipped over it is because our, our sermon series is looking again at the final kind of words and actions of Jesus. This passage is saying a little more maybe about his disciples. So what this sermon is like is like when you're watching your favorite show on Netflix or Hulu or even I guess maybe cable and uh, you're following the storyline and, and you tune in to the next episode and you're super excited about where the story is going and then they do like a backstory episode. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they tell you about where a character's from or something in their background. And in the beginning you're thinking, oh man, I, I wanted to keep going. Like I wanted to find out what was going on. But by the end of the episode, you realize you understand the characters and the story in a deeper way because they went backwards. That's what we're doing. This is our backstory episode as we go back to the story of an argument the disciples were having in Luke 22 and we try to figure out what it tells us about where we're headed in the Gospel of Luke. So as you're getting to Luke 22 in your Bible or on your phone, uh, let me hold out to you the three points I'm going to use by way of an outline. And again, if you're a note taker, would love for you to jot these down. If you're not, just kind of have them in your head. Three points and they go like this. Why are we like this? Why wasn't Jesus like us? And how can he help us? Why are we like this? Why wasn't Jesus like us? And how can he help us? All right, let's start with why are we like this? Let's just own something right off the beginning. When you read this story, it's incredibly obnoxious, is it not? 
It's, it's an obnoxious story. You just, you can't stand these guys for arguing the way they are. And it's obnoxious for a lot of reasons, and I, I want to kind of point them out to you. The first is, is that if you've spent any time, time reading the Gospels, reading the New Testament, you know that the answer to who is the greatest is none of these losers, Okay. You know that right off the bat. Like, this is the worst argument that they could have. I mean, they have done things like try to keep little kids from getting to Jesus. Or when Jesus stops to heal a woman, they're saying to him, hey, we don't really have time for that. One time they asked Jesus to call down fire from the sky and nuke a village, okay? The answer to who's the greatest disciple is it's a tie for last place. So it's obnoxious that they would argue about this. It is also obnoxious because if you keep reading, they are getting ready to prove that none of them are the greatest. When Jesus needs them most, they will abandon him. They will not be courageous. They will not stand up for him. They will again prove it's a tie for last place. But the main reason it's obnoxious is where it comes in the story. Jesus has told them he's going to die In fact, he has told them that the whole reason they're going to Jerusalem is so that he can die. He has literally just shared a meal with them in which he says, this bread represents my body, which is going to be broken, and this wine represents my blood, which is going to be shed. So he's not only told them he's going to die, he he has acknowledged it's going to be a painful death. It's going to be a brutal death. And their response to that was to basically say, oh, Jesus, that's too bad. Which one of us is the greatest? And like I said, it's just obnoxious. And it's easy when you read it to kind of push back from it and say, I am nothing like those guys. It's easy to read it and to think that the whole point of the passage is to kind of point at them and go, at least I'm not like them. But let me let you in on something. The Bible is the most insightful book that has ever been written. The more you read it, the more you'll realize this. It understands you in a way that you don't even understand yourself. It has a way of seeing through you into your heart and into your mind. Whenever you read a passage and you read it and you go, that doesn't have anything to do with me, all that really means is you're not understanding it. Because actually this is not a passage about pride at all. This is not a passage about arrogance or about obnoxiously being prideful. This is not a passage about 12 guys who think they're the greatest and are arguing with full of machismo. This is not a passage about pride. This is a passage about insecurity. And I need you to understand that because until you understand that, this will never make sense to you. It'll be too easy to skip over it and say, I can't resonate with that. I can't identify with that. To get this, this is why I wanted you to have a Bible or look at it, but if not, I'll read it to you. Look at the few verses that come before it. Okay, Jesus has just told them, my body is going to be broken, my blood is going to be shed, and then he says this, you can find it in Luke 22, verse 21. He says, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. In other words, one of you guys sitting at the table with me is going to betray me. One of you guys is going to turn me over. You're going to be instrumental in my death. And then I want you to look at verse 23. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. 
So you see, Jesus says to them, hey, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to turn me over. It's going to be because of one of you that I die. And their immediate reaction to that is to go, oh, man, I hope it isn't me. They know who they are. They, they know their shortcomings. They know their weaknesses. They know their flaws. Their first response is to say, oh, no, oh, oh, I hope it isn't me. And they begin to talk about who it might be. And then if you look at our passage in the very beginning, here's what it says. A dispute also, and that word also could not be more important. A dispute also arose among them as to which was be, to be regarded as the greatest. You see, they found themselves in a moment where what they wanted to say was, oh my goodness, if one of us is going to betray Jesus, it's probably going to be me. It could be me. I'm scared it's going to be me. But they couldn't say that because after all, they're men, right? So instead they go, well, it can't, it might be you, but it can't be me. What do you mean it might be me, but it can't? Well, I'm a greater disciple than you. Why do you say that? Well, because I did this. And then an argument breaks out over who's the greatest, but what's driving it is not pride. If you're the greatest disciple, then you can't possibly be the one who betrays Jesus. Do you see that? This argument is just a mask for their insecurity. And you see, when you put it like that, all of a sudden you can read yourself into this story, can't you? Because who can identify with that? Who can't identify with masking insecurity in pride? Who can't identify with spending money to to cover up how you feel? Who can't identify with speaking boldly to cover up fear? Who can't identify with saying, I need to wear this or drive this or live in this house or go on this vacation? I need to post this on Instagram, not post this on Instagram in order that I might not really be found out to be as scared and weak and fragile as I really am. If you put it that way, if that's what's going on here, then I can totally resonate with this story. And so can you. In fact, this story, when I put it that way, makes me think of the time I played basketball against an NBA player. Yeah, thank you for laughing. <laughs> I guess it's a referendum on how you view my athletic ability. I showed up at a gym in a north suburb of Cleveland. This is back when the NBA was in lockout. I was living in Cleveland at the time, and I went to this suburb every Sunday night to play basketball. It was a gym that somebody had access to, and one night it just so happened that a guy named Samardo Samuels showed up to play. Now, you might not know that name. He played for the Cavs for a little while. He was like the 12th or 13th guy on the bench. But listen, when you're the 12th or 13th guy on the bench of an NBA team, you're pretty good. In fact, when Samardo came out of high school, he's from Louisville, when he came out of high school, he was the number one player in the country out of high school. 6'10", and I don't know how much he weighed, but 0% of it was body fat, okay? He was the most amazing athlete I have ever been around personally. In fact, in between basketball games, when we're all like getting water and feeling like we're gonna die, he would jump rope. It was like his passive aggressive way of saying, I'm not like you losers, <laughs> right? I mean, he was amazing. 
But the thing is, he was, the, he was just the nicest guy. He was a sweetheart. I mean, he, he could have dominated us, right? He, he could have made us all feel like we were children because compared to him, we were. But he was a nice guy. I mean, he, 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 he would let us play and, and make shots and think we were somebody, right? And, and he, would just kinda, he was just trying to stay in shape, waiting for this season to start. Until at the end of the second game, to win the game, I took the ball to the basket. And I have to tell you, I'm not like Pastor Joe, okay? I am not a basketball player, right? I was an average football player in high school, and I play basketball like a guy who was an average football player in high school, okay? So I was there try, because I'm trying to pastor some guys, which in a minute, you, should, you will see, was the absolute wrong way for me to try to show myself to be a pastor. So I take the ball to the basket, the last shot of the game, and I, you know, Samardo Samuels is there. I just, it's just like an alien movie. A shadow starts passing over me. And I don't know what to do, so I end up scooping the ball underneath him, doing a reverse layup, and it goes in, and we win. And listen, I'm not good at basketball, but I am good at pride. <laughs> so, so I start letting everybody know that, you know, I, hey, uh, I just won the game over an NBA player. And the Cavs had not had a good year the year before, so I just made reference that if they were looking for a guy who could get a bucket, I was available. <laughs> You know, and, and Samardo's just over there jumping rope and deciding the time of graciousness is over. <laughs> now, now listen, I, I, he is, was the nicest guy. So if you know him or your paths cross, please, this is every bit about me being an idiot. He was a great guy. But he just decided he was going to remind me who the NBA player was. And so the next game, game three, lasted about three minutes. <laughs> okay. He went down the court and dunked it, took it away from us, down the court and dunked it, and then he just went and jumped rope and looked at me. <laughs> but you know, what happened is he was fine being, and again, he's just a sweetheart, so please, please, this is about me, not about him, but he was fine taking it easy on us as long as we were all clear who the best player was. But the minute a guy who had very little athletic ability but a big mouth, the minute that guy started to question whether Samardo was the best player in the room, he decided he was going to have to assert his greatness. And he did. But listen, that trigger in his heart, well, it's in my heart. I bet it's in yours too. That feeling that, that what we wear and what we eat and where we go and what we post, what our kids wear, what they drive to school, what they, that is saying something about us. And though we so often feel weak and small and scared and helpless and anxious and depressed, we don't say that. We mask it with an incessant argument over who's the greatest, who has the greatest marriage, who takes the greatest vacations, who looks the best who feels the best, who is the best. Why are we like this? Because we know deep down that we feel totally insecure, totally weak, totally unlovable, totally not great. But it's so hard to say that. It's so much easier to try to argue the opposite. But I want you to see, second point, that Jesus was not like that at all. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I want you to see that Jesus knows that they're not being prideful because he does not respond to them as though they're being prideful. You know, Jesus' biggest enemies were prideful people, people who were proud of their religion, proud of their status, proud of their accomplishment. He was not a stranger to calling that out or to speaking down to them, putting them in their place. He doesn't do that here. 
Instead, look at what he says. He says, hey guys, don't you know that the kings, this is verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He says, hey guys, don't you notice that those political leaders that you don't like, you know, the Romans who came in and took over your country and subjugated your people and oppressed your friends and family, don't you notice that they can't help but remind you all the time that they're great? And even when they do that, they refer to themselves as your benefactors. Like, oh, these poor Jewish people, isn't it a good thing we came along and took over their country and run their world because bless their hearts, they're just, they need us. He's like, do you like that? Do you appreciate that? Well, that's what you're doing. He's saying, don't you see that that comes from insecurity? Don't you see that that's what you're doing? Instead, he says, instead, be like this. Rather, verse 26, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Listen, I know books have been written about servant leadership, and that's great. I'm not taking a shot at that, but that is not what Jesus is saying here. Instead, what he's saying is be the kind of people who know who they are and aren't trying to compete to get it. You know, when he says, let the greatest become like the youngest, you ever been down the children's ministry hallway and seen how men interact with babies? I mean, you get a guy walking down the hallway tomorrow. Yeah, so I told him, I'll come into work when I'm ready to come into work. Somebody hands him a baby and he goes, Gucci goo. Who's daddy's little guy, right? Say hi to Papa. And you're thinking, is this the same guy who was just talking smack a minute ago down the hallway? Now, now he's making noises. You know, why is he doing that? Well, because we're competing at work, right? But when you hold a baby, you know that baby loves you. You know you love the baby. You're not trying to prove anything. It's not like you hold the little baby and you go, Gucci goo, and the baby goes, you're speaking like that at your age? I mean, I'm only a baby, but by the time I get to be your age, I'm, you're gonna work for me, buddy. Gucci goo right back at you, right? You're not insecure at all. You know, this is a baby. I have the power here, but I want to, because I'm not threatened and because I'm not insecure, I want to come down to their level and I want them to know that I love them and I want them to know that I acknowledge them. And Jesus says, just be like that all the time. Just be like that all the time. And then you go, well, yeah, that's easy to say, but then look at what he says next. He says, hey, who's greater, the guy who reclines at the table or the guy who waits on the guy who reclines at the table? And the answer, he says, is the guy who reclines at the table, right? He's paying the waiter. But then he says, but what have I done? In other words, he's saying, hey, guys, if you thought the Romans and their way of leading you was great, you'd be following Pilate around but instead you're following me. But what is it about me that you have found to be so beautiful, that you've found to be so compelling, that you've found to be so attractive? He says, here's what it is. I don't have anything to prove. And so because of that, I have spent three years serving you, not asking to be served. You see, Jesus is the only person who has ever lived who was never insecure. Jesus is the only person who's never been petty, who's never spoken pride to mask his weakness, who's never spoken boldly to mask his fear, to mask his uncertainty. He, he, Jesus is the only man, the only person who has ever lived totally free of insecurity. I mean, think about Jesus' story. How many opportunities did he have to prove himself in a petty fashion? You're not the son of God. Oh yeah, what's that you got in your hand? A glass of water? Watch this. 
You're not the son of God. Oh, yeah? Ask me a Bible question. Any Bible question. Even uh, from Leviticus. Even when they arrest him and they take him to the cross and they beat him and they spit on him and they mock him and they hang him on a cross and they go, this guy is not the son of God because if you're the son of God, this doesn't happen to you. Jesus doesn't look at them and go, oh, yeah? And just climb down. He's not insecure. Why is that? It's so tempting to go, well, because he's Jesus. But that's not the answer. He tells us the answer. Keep reading in the passage. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Do you notice he uses past tense language? As my father assigned to me. It's not future oriented. Hey, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. And if I earn it and I accomplish it and I perform and and I don't fail and I don't lose my courage and I don't, then I'm going to earn a kingdom. No, he says, as God has already given to me a kingdom. You see, here's what Jesus is saying. I know who I am. I know who I am. I know what I've come to do. I know why I'm here. I know I've come to live a sinless life. I know I've come to die in the place of sinners. I know I'm going to raise from the dead. I know I'm going to ascend into heaven. I know I'm going to sit at the right hand of God. I know I'm the king of God's kingdom. And so because of that, every day I wake up not saying, how do I make sure all these people know who I am? Because after all, last time I checked, one day I'll come back and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone will know who I am. Instead, I've woken up every day saying, how can I love and serve? these people. See, Jesus says, guys, don't you see the reason why I love you the way I love you, the reason why I encourage you the way I encourage you, the reason why even now when you're being so foolish and so insecure, I speak to you out of love is because I know who I am. I know what God is doing. I know why I'm here and I'm not rattled by anything that comes my way. Do you see the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus is utterly convinced that God is for him. See, we're not sure how people feel about us. So, you know, we're always looking to upgrade what we drive, what we wear, where we go, what we say, how we look, how our family looks. Jesus says, I know who I am. I know why I'm here. I know what God is doing. And so because of that, I am not insecure. That's why you're arguing about who's greatest and I'm getting ready to die for you. That's the difference. So I guess I would just ask you this question. Can you imagine what it was like to be Jesus and wake up every morning totally free of insecurity? I mean, who would you be if tomorrow you woke up and you had no fear, no anxiety, you didn't evaluate yourself based on other people, you didn't believe that other people were evaluating you? Can you imagine how free you'd be? Can you imagine the decisions that you'd make, the decisions that you wouldn't make? Can you imagine all the things that you would be free and clear of, be able to breathe for the first time, be able to fall asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow for the first time? That was the life of Jesus. And if you're like me, you're saying, good for him. What does that mean for me? Well, that brings me to my third point, which is to say, how can he help us? Again, I want you to see, because I don't know what your story is, and I don't know 
how long you've been here, how long you've been considering Jesus. I don't know where your heart is with Jesus, right? Uh, you can be a Christian and not have spoken to Jesus for a while, right? I don't know where you are, but I want you to see that they are being incredibly insecure and incredibly foolish, and he does not respond to them in anger. He loves them. He loves you. His response to your insecurity and mine is not anger. Instead, this is what he says. Pick it up in verse 28. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. By the way, if you're not careful, you go, oh, he's getting ready to tell them they earned something. But this statement is a little tongue-in-cheek because his biggest trials haven't come yet. And guess what? Spoiler alert. They're not going to stay with him. Okay, so listen to what he says. It's not going to be about earning. Listen to what he says. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, guys, you're arguing over who's the greatest because you know deep down you're not. You know you're weak. You know you're scared. You know you're fragile. And you think the way you're going to earn something from God is by climbing over each other to become the greatest. He said, but here's what you don't understand. I have come to do something truly great. And I'm going to share it with you. That's what he's saying. I've come to be great in order that you might share in my greatness. That's what he's saying. I've come to live sinlessly. You, you have not. I've come to die sacrificially. You will not. I've come to raise from the dead. I've come to ascend to heaven. I've come to sit at the right hand of God, to be God's king on the throne forever. But I've come to take you with me. So don't you understand? You don't achieve your greatness. I'm going to achieve it for you, and I'm going to share it with you. This makes me think of birthday parties. You know, you know I have five kids. The oldest is 13, the youngest is two, so it's a big range. And the different ages kids respond to birthday parties differently. You ever been to a four-year-old's birthday party? It, it, it's, it's like a little bit of fun and a lot of biting, fussing, kicking, screaming, right? And you might just think maybe at your house, and I know my wife could probably do better, right? But that's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke. <clears throat> that's a joke. <clears throat> But no, all four-year-old birthday parties are just nuts. Do you know why? It's because four-year-olds show up to a birthday party and for about two minutes they're having fun and then they go, you know what, forget this. I want it to be my birthday. That's what happens. And they go, I want a present. I want to stick my face in the cake. I, I want everyone to tell me happy birthday, right? My, my two-year-old daughter, every time it's somebody's birthday, she spends the whole next week going, it's Ella's birthday. Happy birthday, Ella! Like she can self-pronounce her birthday, right? So what's happening is that when you're four, you're saying, I don't understand why everyone else is giving that kid attention. I want attention, right? I want to be the cute one. I want gifts. I want everyone to see me. And they'll bite and fuss and kick and punch to get what they want. Not my 13-year-old. Here's what you realize when you're 13. When it's your friend's birthday, everybody wins. Everybody wins. Listen, junior high birthdays are like arms races, okay? Families trying to one-up each other by performing. And if you have a 13-year-old, let me just tell you this. You win, okay? You win. I can't keep up. My son went to a birthday party recently. Here's what they did. They rented vans, okay, so that they would be socially distanced. 
Then they went to the movie theater where they rented out the movie theater, watched a movie, all the snacks that you want. Then after that, they went to Top Golf. Okay, they were gone for hours. I gave my son $15 and told him, don't spend it all in one place. When he gets home, he's like, it was amazing. It was great. We had such a good time. And I said, how much money did you spend? He said, none of it. And he said, can I keep the $15? And I said, I'm glad you had a great time. No. <laughs> right? He came back pumped. Why? It was not his birthday. It was his friend's birthday. But here's what he realized. If it's your friend's birthday, they get honor. They get glory. They get greatness. But they will bring you with them because you are their friend. Listen, two kinds of people in this room right now. Four-year-olds who believe the only path to greatness is to scrape and bite and claw. Better cars, better houses, better vacations, to be more attractive, to be more accomplished, to have better behaved children, constantly comparing, constantly. And listen, do you know what that is? It's a constant argument over greatness while you constantly fear weakness in your heart. But then there are those who say, you know what? Life is not really about me. My story is not really about me. I am not the greatest. If, if we're arguing over who's the greatest, I lose. Over who's the smartest, I lose. Who's the most moral, I lose. Who's the best parent, I lose. I will never win those arguments. But here's the thing. Life is actually about Jesus. It's his world. It's his story. It's his kingdom. He's the greatest. He gets the glory, but here's the truth. He wants to share with me. Friends, listen, I know you feel weak. So do I. I know you feel scared. So do I. I know you feel anxious. So do I. I know you're fragile. So am I. But what if instead of masking it, we just confessed it? What if instead of competing, we went to Jesus. And we just said, Jesus, I'm tired of trying to be great. I'm tired of trying to be the best mom. I'm tired of trying to accomplish at work. I'm tired of all these things. I'm just tired. And we began to believe that the only truly great person who has ever lived, that all of human history is headed to a party for him. And we're invited. Listen, if you're here and you are not a Christian, one of the reasons we scrape and we claw and we fight is because we know that life is, this life is all there is. And so I better get everything that I want. We're terrified we're not going to get it. And if we get it, we're terrified we're going to lose it. But if you give your story to Jesus, brother or sister in Christ, listen to me. Do you know greatness is your destiny? Do you know that? Jesus says, I have a kingdom and you can sit at my table. You're my friends. You're my friends. Greatness is your destiny. Not because you earned it, not because you achieved it, but because it's his party and he wants to share. It's okay if you're weak. It's okay if you're flawed. It's okay if you're fragile. It's okay if you're anxious. It's his party and he wants to share. Let me pray for us. Father God, it is just... What a privilege it is to stand up here and to say such wonderful things and to have them be true because you make them true. 
mean, you had every reason to yell and scream at these guys, to flip over the table and say, in a few hours, I'm going to be arrested. In a few more hours, I'm going to be mocked and beaten and spit on and stripped naked and killed. And you're all going to abandon me. None of you are great. But you didn't do that. That's not how you treat us. Instead, you said, don't you see, you don't have to scrape and fight and claw for greatness. It's mine and I want to share. You are just so good to us. And God, I pray for those who don't yet know that, that even this morning they might begin to believe that. And I pray for those of us who came in saying we believe that, but oh, boy, we're just as busy fighting for greatness as anyone else. Would you free us from that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.